Chapter 4 of The Adventures of a Suburbanite. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Cheatham. The Adventures of a Suburbanite by Ellis Parker Butler. Chapter 4 Bob. The next morning, I stayed at home to see about getting the stable built in a hurry. But before I had finished breakfast, Millington came over and said it was an ideal day for a little spin up to Port Lafayette in his automobile. He said the whole machine was in perfect order, and we would dash out to Port Lafayette, have a bath in the salt water, and come spinning back. And he told Isabel and me to get on our hats, and he would have the car before the door in a minute. Isabel and I hastily finished our coffee and put on our hats and went out to the gate, for, although we were very eager to build the stable, we did not like to offend Millington by refusing his invitation when he had asked us so often to go to Port Lafayette. In half an hour, he arrived at the gate, and we climbed in. Our usual customs on these trips to Port Lafayette was for Millington and me to sit in the front, while Isabel and Mrs. Millington sat in the rear. There was a nice little gate in the rear by which they could enter. You see, Millington's automobile was just a little old. I should not go so far as to say that it was the first automobile ever made. It was probably the 13th, and Millington was probably the 13th owner. I know it had four cylinders, because Millington was constantly remarking that only three were working. Sometimes only one worked, and sometimes that one did not. When we were all comfortably arranged in our seats, and all snugly tucked in, Millington cranked the machine for half an hour, and then remarked regretfully that this was one of the days none of the cylinders were working, and we got out again. Mr. Rolfs had come out to see us start, and he helped Millington and me push the automobile back to the Millington garage, and as I walked homeward, he said he had heard I was going to buy a horse, and he wanted to give me a little advice. Probably you have not given much attention to the subject of deforestation, he said, but I have, and it is the great crime of our age. I told him that I did not see what this had to do with my purchasing a horse, but he said it had everything to do with it. When you buy a horse, you have to erect a stable, he said, and when you erect a stable, you have to buy lumber, and when you have to buy lumber, you suffer in your purse because the forests have been ruthlessly destroyed. As a friend and a neighbour, I would not have you go and purchase poor lumber, and with it build a stable that will rot to pieces in a few years. You must buy the best lumber, and that is too expensive to use recklessly. I want to warn you particularly about wire nails. Do not let your builder use them. They loosen in a short time and allow the boards to warp and crack. Personally, if I were building a stable, I should have the ends of the boards dovetailed, and instead of nails I should use ash pegs. But I understand you do not wish to go to great expense, so screws will do. Let it be part of your contract that not a nail shall be used in your stable, nothing but screws, and if you can afford brass screws, so much the better. But remember, no nails. I thanked Rolfs and when Millington came over to invite me to take a little run up to Port Lafayette the next morning, I told him what Mr. Rolfs had said. Now that's just like Rolfs, he said, impractical as the day is long. Screws would not do at all. The carpenters would drive the screws with a hammer, and the screws would crack the wood. Take my advice, and let it be part of your contract that not a screw is to be used in your stable. Nothing but wire nails. But... Stipulate long wire nails, wire nails so long that they will go clear through and clinch on the other side, and then see that each and every nail is clinch. 
If you do this, you'll have no trouble with split lumber and not a board will work loose. When I spoke to the builder about the probable cost of the stable, I was sorry I had been so lenient with Isabel, and that I had not put my foot down on the weather vane at once. A weather vane does not add to the comfort of a family horse, and the longer I spoke with the builder, the surer I became that what I needed was not a lot of gimcracks, but a plain, simple, story-and-a-half affair with the chaste architectural lines of a dry goods box. I mentioned, casually, the hints that Mr. Rolfs and Mr. Millington had given me, but the builder did not seem very enthusiastic about them. He snorted in a particular way, and then said that if I was going in for that sort of thing, I could get better results by having no nails or screws at all. He said that I could have holes bored in the boards with a gimlet, and have the stable laced together with rawhide thongs, but that when I got ready to talk business in a sensible way, I could let him know. He said this was his busy day, and that his office was not a lunatic asylum. I managed to calm him in less than half an hour, and he remained quite docile until I mentioned Isabel, and said she hoped he would have the stable ready for the horse within a week. It took me much longer to calm him that time. For a few moments I feared for his reason, but he quietened down. Then I showed him a plan I had drawn, showing the working of the manure dump, and this had quite a different effect on him. It pleased him immensely, as I could see by his face. I explained how it operated, how throwing a catch allowed one end of the stall floor to drop, while the other end of the stall floor was held in place by hinges, and he said it was certainly a new idea. He asked me whether it was Mr. Rolfe's idea or Mr. Millington's, and when I told him that I had worked out the plan myself, he said he had rather thought so. It is just such a plan as I should expect from a man of your intelligence to work out, he said. Then he asked to see my bank book, and when I had shown him just how much money I had, he said the best way to build the stable was by the day. If it was built by the job, he explained, a builder naturally had to hurry the job, and things were not done as carefully as I wished them done. But if it was done by the day, every hammer stroke would be carefully made, and I could pay him every evening for the work done that day. About the third week of the building operations, those careful hammer strokes began to get on my nerves. I never knew hammer strokes so carefully considered and so cautiously delivered. The carpenters were most careful about them, and several times I spoke to the builder and suggested that if shorter nails were used, perhaps it would not take so many strokes of the hammer to drive them in. I told him, if he was willing, I was willing to have the rest of the sable done by the job, but he said it had gone too far for that. There were two men working on my stable. Two souls, but with a single thought, Isabel called them, and they were hard thinkers. The two of them would take hold of a board, one at either end, and hold it in their hands and look at it, and think. I do not know what they thought about, deforestation probably, but they would think for ten minutes and then put the board gently to one side and think about another board. They did their thinking, as they did their work, by the day. We had plenty of time in which to select our horse while our stable was building. My advertisements in the local paper bought a horse to my door the morning after it appeared, and no horse could have suited me quite so well as that one. But I was resolute and firm. I told the man, he was not a dealer, nor yet a commuter, and my conversation with him showed me he knew just enough, and not too much, about horses. That I liked his horse very well indeed, but that I could not purchase it. At this he seemed downcast, and I did not blame him. He seemed to take my refusal as some sort of personal insult for the horse was young, large, strong, gentle and speedy, and the price was right. But every time I began to weaken, Isabel said, John, remember number 11, and I refrained from purchasing that horse. I finally sent the man away with warm expressions of my esteem for him as a man, but that did not seem to cheer him much. An hour later, another man bought another horse, 
and I sent him away also, as was my duty, for he was only number two. But he was hardly gone when horse number one appeared again. I saw at once that I was going to have trouble with that man. He was so sure he had a horse I wanted that he would not go away and stay away. He kept coming back, and each time he went away sadder than before. He was a sad-looking man, anyway, and he would sit in his buggy and talk to me until another horse was driven up. And then he would sigh and drive down to the corner and sit and look at me reproachfully until the other man drove away again. Then he would drive back and reproach me with tears in his eyes for not buying his horse. By lunchtime, I was almost worn out, and I told Isabel as much when I looked out the window and saw that handsome horse and his sad driver waiting patiently at my gate. I told her I was tempted to take that horse, Mrs. Rolfs or no Mrs. Rolfs. Take that horse, said Isabel, as if my words surprised her. Why, of course we're going to take that horse. But my dear, I said, after what you told me about taking the eleventh horse. Certainly, said Isabel. What is this but the eleventh horse? It came first, and then another horse came, and then this one came third, and then some other horse came, and then this one came fifth, and so on, and now it is standing there at the gate, the eleventh horse. Certainly we'll buy this horse. Isabel, I said, we might quite as well have bought it the first time it was driven to our gate as this time. Not at all, she said. That would have been an altogether different thing. If we had taken the first horse that would offered, we would have regretted it all our lives. But now we can take this horse and feel perfectly safe. Bob, that was the name of the horse, fitted into our stable pretty well. He had to bend rather sharply in the middle to get out of his stall, but he was quite limber for a horse of his age and size, so he managed it well. A stiffer horse might have broken in two or have been permanently bent. The stall was so economically built that a large, long horse like Bob stuck out of it like a long ship in a short dock. He stuck out so far that we had to go around through the carriage room to get to the other side of him. Our new Mr. Prawley did not mind this. He was willing to spend all the time necessary going from one bit of work to another. There was one advantage in having the stable and everything about it on a small scale. It lessened the depth of the manure pit. The very first night we put Bob in his stall, we heard a loud noise in the stable. Isabel suggested that we had overfed Bob, and that he had swelled out and pressed out the sides of the stable, but I thought it more likely that the weatherboarding had slipped loose. I had seen the thoughtful carpenters putting the weatherboarding on the stable, but Isabella and I were both wrong. Bob had merely dropped into the manure pit. I was glad then that I had chosen a strong horse, for he did not seem to mind the drop in the least. He stood there with his front feet in the basement, as you might say, and with his rear feet upstairs, quite as if this was his usual way of standing. After that, he often fell into the manure pit, and he always took it good-naturedly. He got so he expected it, after a while, and if his stall floor did not drop once a day, he became restless and took no interest in his food. Usually, during the day, Bob and Mr. Prawley dropped into the basement together while Mr. Prawley was currying Bob, but at night, when we heard Bob calling us in the homesick, whinnying tone and kicking his heels against the side of the stable, we knew what he wanted, and to prevent him kicking the stable to ruins, we, Isabel and I, would go out and drop him into the basement a couple of times. Then he would be satisfied. There was but one thing we feared. Bob might become so fond of having his forefeet in the basement and his rear feet upstairs that he would stand no other way. And of course, in time, his front legs would have to lengthen enough to let his head reach his manger, or his neck would have to stretch. Either would give him the general appearance of a giraffe. While this would be neat for show purposes, it would attract almost too much attention in a family horse. I have no doubt that this is the way the giraffe acquired its peculiar construction, but we were able to avoid it, for we awoke one night when Bob made an unaided descent into the manure pit, and when we went to aid him, we found he had descended at both ends. 
on account of the economical hinges used on the drop floor of the stall of our equine palace. Bob showed in every way that he had enjoyed the drop more than any drop he had ever taken, but I drew the line there. I had other things to do more important than conducting a private Coney Island for a horse. If Bob had been a colt, I might not have been so stern about it, but I will not pamper a staid old family horse by opening shoot the shoots and loop the loops for him at two o'clock in the morning. Isabel, I said, if that horse is to continue in my stable, you may tell Mr. Prawley that it is necessary for his health that he sleep in the stable loft hereafter. It will be good exercise for him to get up at midnight and pull Bob out of the manure pit. The present Mr. Prawley will not do it, said Isabel. He has a wife and a family at East Westcote, and he... Very well, I said. Then get another Mr. Prawley. Of the new Mr. Prawley, it is necessary to speak a few words. End of chapter 4 Recording by David Cheatham